of an anchor that keeps the soul steadfast and sure while the billows roll. Fastened to the rock which cannot move, grounded firm and deep in the Savior's love. Spiritual Sword Media presents The Anchor of the Soul with Mike Hickson, preacher for the Olive Branch Church of Christ in Olive Branch, Mississippi. We're going to be looking at Psalm 89 at verse 7 in just a minute. We're going to be talking about the God that we worship. And worship is a privilege. And you and I, as God's people, we have the opportunity to come together on the first day of the week to worship God and to reflect upon His goodness, the great blessings that He bestows on us on a regular basis. And so tonight we're going to be thinking for just a moment or two about the importance of worship. And I want us to begin by talking about the aim of worship. When we think about the aim of worship, really we are emphasizing the focal point of worship. Now we live in a day and time, we live in an age when many people have misconceptions about worship. And when you look at scripture, what stands out is that God is the focal point of worship. I think sometimes people have the idea that when they come together to worship, that they are the audience. Well, scripturally, biblically speaking, God is the audience. Jesus said in John 4, 24, God is spirit and they that worship him. We are here tonight to worship the Lord. David in 1 Chronicles chapter 16, verse 29, said in the long ago, give to the Lord the glory do his name. The word worship means acts of reverence paid to deity. And so we're giving God that which he right, rightfully deserves. And so as we think about the focal point of worship being God, the aim of our worship, there are some things that maybe we ought to consider in light of this point. First of all, I guess maybe it would be good for us to consider for a moment the fact that God is worthy of our worship. We talk about the nobility of our worship to God. And the idea is he is worthy of our worship. In the book of Revelation, in chapter 4, we have a picture of the throne room of Almighty God. And in chapter 5, we have a picture of the throne room of the Lamb. But it's interesting, in Revelation chapter 4, we have those beings that are surrounding the throne of Almighty God. And they cry out, you are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory, honor, and power. And so God is worthy of our worship. And as I think about the fact that God is worthy of our worship, there are a couple of sub-points that I would share with you. We talk about our adoration in worship and then the exaltation in worship. We come together to exalt God in worship. We understand that God is a being who is literally high and lifted up. Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 6, said in the long ago, in the year that King Isaiah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up. When we come together to worship God, we ought to view him as sitting upon a throne high and lifted up. And really, the fact of the matter is God is sovereign. 
God is over all. That's why the psalmist said in Psalm 99, the Lord reigns. God is in control. God is on his throne. And thus he is worthy of our worship. The song that we sang a moment ago, that Billy led just a moment ago, taken from Psalm 148, where the psalmist literally enjoins all of creation to join in praise to Almighty God. Why? Because he's worthy. Because he is an exalted being. And then as we think about the adoration that he is due, when we come together on the first day of the week, there are three things that I believe we ought to consider very carefully. Number one, we are coming to worship our creator. The psalmist said in Psalm 95 at verse 6, Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. We are coming in the presence of God and we are giving him the honor that he is due. And we are reflecting on the fact that he is our creator. He is the one who has made us. The psalmist would say in Psalm 100 that the Lord, he is the one who has made us and not we ourselves. And so we are looking to God and acknowledging the fact that he is the one that brought us into existence. How did, it, how did he do that? By his word. The psalmist said, by the word of the Lord were the heavens made and all the host of them by the breath of his mouth. He spoke and it was done. He commanded and it stood fast. Going back to Revelation chapter four, when those beings who surrounded the throne spoke of their praise to God, they said, you are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory, honor, and praise for you created all things. And by your will, they exist and were created. So when we come together on the first day of the week, when we come as a corporate assembly to worship God, we are in the presence of our creator. Go back and read Genesis chapter one. Look at all the people in our world today who are confused about where they came from. You and I are blessed because we know where we came from. We came from the hand of loving God. The psalmist said in Psalm 139, we have been fearfully and wonderfully made. God is the father of our spirit. We have an inward man and an outward man. That inward man will live forever. The outward man will ultimately give way to death, reside in the cemetery, and one day be resurrected and reunited with that inward man, that spirit, that eternal part of us. And so God is our creator, but also God is our sustainer. To think that God is the one who upholds all things by the word of his power, according to Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. Look at our universe. Isn't it amazing to look at our solar system? Note, if you would, some of the laws that govern our universe. Who put those laws into place? Who keeps those laws in check? Let me tell you who does. God in heaven does. The amazing universe that we live in is governed by an almighty God. When we come together to worship, we reflect upon the fact that he is our creator, that he is our sustainer, and then also that he is our redeemer. When God created man, it's worth noting that before he ever framed the world or brought man into existence, he had a plan whereby he could save the crown of his creation. In Genesis chapter 1, we read of the days of creation. In chapter 1, verse 31, the Bible tells us that after having surveyed all that he had made, God looked upon it 
And his conclusion, it's very good. God's the one who created man. He created us in his own image and in his own likeness. Moses tells us in Genesis chapter 2 at verse 7 that God made man from the dust of the earth, breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and he became a living soul. God, because he created us, and because God understood that mankind, given the freedom of choice, would make poor decisions, thereby sinning, would need a redeemer. And so he had a plan in place. And we ought to acknowledge that. We ought to reflect upon that when we come together to worship him. In Ephesians chapter 1, Paul recounts God's eternal plan to redeem the world by Jesus Christ. And in verse 6, he said, To the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein he has made us accepted in the beloved. So here is Paul praising God for what? For his redemptive plan. And you and I, we ought to praise God for that. So we think about the nobility of our worship to God. But then let me call your attention to the fact that there are some characteristics of God that we ought, that we ought to bear in mind as we come together to worship. And so we talk about the nature of the God we worship. When you begin reading the Bible, one of the things that stands out is God is an amazing being. And there are a lot of things that you and I, we can read, we can study, we can take all the information, begin to draw some conclusions, and, and we can understand a subject or an individual from cover to cover. Well, it's difficult for us to comprehend the nature of God. But there are some characteristics of God that I think help us to see the God that we come to honor in worship. Let me just call to mind some of those characteristics. First of all, I would submit unto you that the God we serve in worship, the God that we come together to worship, that he is the one true God. There are a lot of people in our world today that have a lot of false ideas and false concepts about God. We live in the age of pluralism, and the idea is anything goes. Whatever you want to believe, whatever you want to espouse, whatever you want to embrace, hey, that's okay. Why? Because we live in the 21st century. We live in the age of enlightenment. We'll go back and look at Acts chapter 17 when the apostle Paul went to the city of Athens. The Grecian people were highly intellectual. And we pride ourselves as a nation of people as, well, really, if you look at the world as a whole, people pride themselves on their intellect and their wisdom, et cetera, their stature. But when you look at the people who lived in Athens, you read about people who were steeped in idolatry. Luke tells us in chapter 17, verse 16, that when the apostle Paul made his way into Athens, his spirit was stirred within him because the whole city was given over to idolatry. Here were people that were serving and honoring a multiplicity of gods. What did Paul do? Paul began to reason with them. When you reason with somebody, what are you doing? You are, you are really reasoning with them using the mental processes that God has given us, that God has endowed us with. It's called a brain. And so we talk about logic. That's what Paul did. And Luke tells us that when Paul stood on Mars Hill, 
He said, men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you're too superstitious. For as I passed by and beheld your devotions, I found an unknown, I found an altar to the unknown God whom you therefore ignorantly worship. Him declare unto you. What was Paul doing? He was going to declare to them the one true living God. We today, we worship, we serve the one true living God. There are a lot of people, as I said a moment ago, they have false concepts about God. There may be many gods by way of idols, but there's only one true living God. When Paul went to the city of Athens, those people had a multiplicity of idols, of gods. And Paul said, let me tell you what, you need to understand there is a God in heaven. And this God in heaven dwells not in temples made with hands. Neither is he worshipped by the hands of men as though he has need of anything. This is the being in whom we live, move, and have our being. He is the giver of all life, breath, and all things. And Paul said, let me tell you what, this God, this one true living God, will one day hold us accountable because he will bring us into the judgment. And so, when we come together on the first day of the week, when we come together to worship God, we are worshiping the one true God. A second characteristic of God, he is an eternal being. You know what the beauty of Christianity is and the beauty of embracing what the Bible teaches is that we are serving a God who is an eternal being. We don't have to worry about God fading out of existence. In Revelation chapter 4, two times in two verses, John in the Revelation speaks of him who lives forever and ever. The psalmist in Psalm 90, and I believe that Moses wrote Psalm 90, Moses in the long ago spoke of God as a being from everlasting to everlasting. And he said, you are God. God is an everlasting being. In Isaiah chapter 40, Isaiah asked the question, have you not known, have you not heard the everlasting God, the Lord? That's the being that we're serving. We're serving a being who has no beginning, who has no ending of whom John said, who was, is, and is to come. Can you fathom a being who has no beginning point and no ending point? That's God. Now we talk about trying to understand some of the things about God. There are some things I cannot literally wrap my mind around. And I'm, I'm always thinking about what Paul said in Romans chapter 11. When he said, oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past Tracing out. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor? The fact of the matter is, God is an eternal being. And it's difficult for us to understand that. There is a third characteristic of God that ought to make worship special to us and important to us. And that is the God that we worship is a personal God. He's not detached from us as his creation. But rather, he is a personal God. He is a compassionate God. The psalmist said in Psalm 103, he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. God knows us inside out. As a matter of fact, the psalmist said in Psalm 139, we are fearfully and wonderfully made. God knows us. And as the crown of his creation, he is, he is keenly interested in our well-being here on planet Earth. 
In Matthew chapter 10, Jesus talked about how a, spar a sparrow couldn't fall to the ground without our heavenly father knowing about it. And his conclusion was this, are you not of more value than many sparrows? The answer is absolutely. But he said in that context, he said the very hairs of your head are numbered. What does that say about God? It says God knows me. God understands me. When you read Psalm 139, there are, there are many things that, that literally emerge out of a study of that, of that chapter or that psalm. The psalmist said on one occasion, there's not a word on my tongue, but lo, O Lord, you know it all together. God knows us. And because he knows us, because he cares about us, because he's concerned about our plight, our well-being here on planet Earth, here's what Peter said, casting all your care on him, for he cares for you. When we come together to corporate worship, one of the things that we do every time we assemble, we talk about those who need our prayers. Aren't you grateful that we can bow our heads and pray to a God who's concerned about us individually? Aren't you grateful to know that we have, we have the very ears of God pointed in our direction when we bow our heads and pray to him? The Hebrew writer said, let us therefore draw boldly under the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. To know that the God that I worship, he's concerned about me and he's concerned about you. There is a fourth thing that I would call attention to and that is he is a loving God. In 1 John chapter 4 verse 8, the Bible says regarding God, God is love. Now, from Genesis to Revelation, the Holy Spirit emphasizes what? The love of God. We talk about God's plan to redeem man. What was the basis for that plan? The love of God. Do you remember what Paul said in Ephesians chapter 2 verse 4? That God who is rich in mercy for the great love wherewith he loved us. To think that God loves me individually. Listen to what Jesus said in John 3, 16. For God so loved the world. That's inclusive of every person. Every person that has ever walked on planet earth, that's ever appeared in this universe. The Bible says God loves that person. God loves all people. And that's why, that's why he devised a redemptive plan. Now, in light of God's love for us, John said we love him in return, don't we? Because he said we love him because he first loved us. When we come to appreciate the love of God and all that he's done for us, I think that it helps to make our worship special. It helps us to understand that we are worshiping a God who is worthy of our adoration. He's worthy of exaltation. He is, as Isaiah said in the long ago, high and lifted up. So we talk about the aim of our worship, but then there's a second thing that we need to see, and that is the all in our worship. Now, the psalmist said, God is greatly to be feared in the assembly of the saints and to be had in reverence by all them about him. God, of course, is the aim of our worship. But there is, there is a spirit that ought to accompany our worship to God. And that spirit is awe, reverence, respect, fear, whatever term you want to use. 
And so, as we think about the awe that ought to accompany our worship, let me just call attention to a couple of things. First, consider with me, if you would, the demand of worship. In John 4, verse 24, Jesus again, we looked at that verse just a minute ago, but Jesus said, God is spirit, and they that worship him, the they in that context has to do with the assembly, the people. You and I, we are the assembly. God is the audience. And so, when we come together, we're coming together to worship God. As I said a minute ago, he is the focal point of our worship. And in order for our worship to be acceptable, we have to understand that he is the aim of our worship. You remember what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 4, verse 10, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only you will serve. Jesus, of course, responding to the devil and one of the temptations that was posed to him. But nonetheless, we are the assembly. But there's something else I want you to think about as it relates to John 4, 24. And that is the authority of our worship. By what authority do we appeal when it comes to worship? Is it what I think? Is it what the world mandates? Is it out for popular opinion? Listen, nowhere in the scriptures, and you can go all the way back to the patriarchal period and begin moving forward, from the patriarchal period to the Mosaic dispensation to the Christian age, nowhere has God ever given man the prerogative to decide how he will worship him. God is the one who defines the parameters of our worship. God is the one who legislates our worship. You see, God is the creator. We are his creation. As the creator, he has the right to define the terms, the limitations, the parameters, if you please, of our worship to him. Here's what Jesus said in Matthew 28, verse 18. All authority... All power has been given unto me in heaven and on earth. Jesus has all authority. He is seated at the right hand of Almighty God. And to be seated at the right hand of God is a designation of the power that he wields. Now, if Jesus is in heaven and he's seated at the Father's right hand, how then does he legislate his body, the church? Through his will, through the word of God. God the Father said in Matthew chapter 17, verse 5, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. Hear him. Whatever, whatever is said about worship, ultimately it has to go back to what does the Bible say? What does the scripture have to say about our worship to God? Now Paul said in Colossians 3, verse 17, what, whatever you do in word or in deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. That simply means to do it by his authority. Now we're talking about the demand of worship, the demands of worship. What are those demands? Well, we are the assembly. We have to understand that the aim of our worship is God. There's the authority. Whatever acts of worship we engage in, they have to have a thus saith the Lord approach attached to them. And there are five acts of worship. And you can read of those five acts of worship in the New Testament. 
But then there is the attitude that we bring to worship. Now, please listen very carefully. Jesus said, God is spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. To worship God in truth means by his authority, the standard, that is his word. To worship him in spirit means to worship him with the right attitude. When we come together to worship God, we have to come with a mindset to worship. Listen again to the the definition of worship. Acts of reverence paid to deity. When we come, we're coming to give. Now, do we receive benefits and blessings from worship? The, The answer would be yes. But ultimately, we are coming to give. Listen again to what David said in 1 Chronicles 16, 29. He said, give to the Lord the glory due his name. Underline, underscore that word give. He said, bring an offering to him and come before him. So we're coming to do what? We're coming to give. We're coming to bring an offering. We are giving him the fruit of our lips. The sacrifice of praise as the Hebrew writer would talk about in Hebrews 13 at verse 15. But we have to have the right attitude. Sometimes people leave the assembly and they say, well, I didn't get anything out of worship. Well, the question ought to be, what did you put into worship? And you can't stay up till three or four in the morning and then come in the next morning to worship and expect to be able to pay attention. You can't do that. You've got to come with a mindset that says, I'm ready to worship. But then there's a second thing that I want to call your attention to, and that is the decorum that ought to be present in our worship. Listen again to what the psalmist said. God is greatly to be feared in the assembly of the saints and to be had in reverence by all them that are about him. I want to take you back for just a minute to the book of Exodus chapter 3. When God called Moses on the backside of, of the mountain of Horeb, he told Moses on that occasion, Moses, take off your sandals. For the ground on which you are standing is holy ground. God wasn't saying that that ground, that parcel of ground was holy per se. What made that place holy was God's presence. When we come together on the, on the first day of the week or when we come together as a corporate body of people and we come for the express purpose of worshiping God, we need to understand we are in the presence of God. And listen very carefully. We are on holy ground. This is holy ground. Not because this building makes it holy. What makes it holy is we are in the presence of Jehovah God. When we step back and think about what the psalmist said, God is greatly to be feared in the assembly of the saints and to be had in reverence by all them about him. Listen very carefully. We are in worship to Almighty God. And there is a spirit, there is a decorum that ought to accompany our presence in worship. If you're here tonight and you're not a New Testament Christian, then I want to encourage you to come to Christ tonight. I want to encourage you to come to Christ because the Bible says Christ loved you and gave himself for you. 
Here's what you need to do. You need to believe that he's the son of God, John 8, 24. Repent of every sin, Acts 2, 38. Confess his name before others, Acts 8, 37. Be baptized into Christ so that every sin can be washed away. That's what the Bible says in Acts 22, 16. And then be faithful. Just live a faithful life. The promise is the crown of life, James 1, 12. Thank you for listening to the Anchor of the Soul. Your speaker has been Mike Hickson, preacher for the Olive Branch Church of Christ, located at 9100 East Sandage Road in Olive Branch, Mississippi. To hear this lesson again and to see video archives, go to olivebranchchurchofchrist.org. Tune in next Sunday for more of the Anchor of the Soul. Will your anchor hold in the storms of life When the clouds unfold their wings of strife When the strong tides lift and the cables strain Will your anchor drift or firm remain? We have an anchor that keeps the soul Steadfast and sure while the billows roll Fastened to the rock which cannot move Grounded firm and deep in the Savior's love. Hi, I'm Mike Hickson. We hope you've enjoyed the Anchor the Soul radio broadcast. Our worship services at the Olive Branch Church of Christ begin at 10 a.m. each Sunday morning. Our Sunday evening service starts at 6 p.m. If you're in the Olive Branch area, we would love to have you visit with us. Services at the Olive Branch Church of Christ are streamed live over the Internet each week please visit our website for additional details. That website is www.olivebranchchurchofchrist.org. Join us again next Sunday morning on this station at 8.30 a.m. for the Anchor of the Soul. This is a presentation of Spiritual Sword Media.